Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. I want to ask you to turn in God's Word to the second chapter of Luke, back to the passage that Pastor Bob read a little earlier today. We started two weeks ago a brand new series called Building Warriors. What does it look like to raise the children in our midst after the pattern of the 127th Psalm, which says that children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior? How do we raise them up? Last week, we asked the more particular question of what does this look like when we're talking about a small child, whether we're talking about an infant, a toddler, or someone in grade school. Now today, we're going to discuss a little more sticky, a little more complicated, and frankly, a little more intimidating topic, and that is what does this look like during the teen years? And that's intimidating for me as a father, because I've only got one out of the house, and i got two more to go. So my experience is rather limited compared even to some of you. But it's also a little intimidating as a pastor. And let me tell you why that is. It's because there really is a gap between what the Scriptures teach about human development at this stage of life and what our own experiences have taught us living in the culture that we live. And by that I mean this. There's not a person alive on the planet right now that has lived prior to the recognition of a category called adolescence. Adolescence. When sociologists speak of this term, they speak of its invention. I'm actually very thankful. I appreciate the honest admission there because what it has done for us is that we now have a very distinct phase of life and it's increasing in years with every successive generation between childhood and adulthood. Prior to this phase, we understood that there were youth, there were young people starting around the age of 12 or 13 uh, up until around the age of 30. Uh, but what, there was no category for an adolescent, at least not in the sense that our culture uh, has told us that there there is, and that period of time has been lengthening, which is why it is getting tougher. And so when you see that gap between what the Scriptures teach about what this particular age ought to look like and what our experience in culture has been, it, it explains a little bit, moms and dads, why it's difficult to raise a teen in this environment. If you are a teen listening to me, it explains why it's so hard for you to be raised in this environment. In fact, if you're a teen listening to my voice right now and you're thinking, so there's some things my parents just don't understand because it's harder for me than it was for them, in many ways, you're absolutely right. And parents, when you go, it does seem like it was a, it's a lot harder to raise one than it was to be one. You too are absolutely right. And part of the reason for that is the way our culture has reacted to this issue of adolescence. It's getting harder because it's getting longer. Let me explain a little what I'm talking about. If you were born prior to 1945, would you just raise your hand? All right, we don't know exactly how old you are, but we got a few of you here. All right, prior to 1945... If you were born in that generation, you were considered to have reached adulthood, which means fully functioning adult, which means you have the capability to take care of yourself, pay your own bills, do those kinds of things. Wherever you were living, whether or not you were married, you were at that adult stage. You, by averaging as a generation, reached that age by the age of 18. All right, you graduated high school, you either went into the military or you got a job. Uh, and for some of you, by the time you got in your early 20s, you were married, you'd had a child, you'd bought a home. 
Those last three things are not absolutely necessary to be an adult, uh, but they were part and parcel to your generation's understanding of what that meant to take responsibility. Now, what happened then, for those of you who are part of that generation, is you had a bunch of kids. And the baby boomers, born between 1946 and 1964, let me see some of you. Where are you at? Yep, a few more of you. Uh, Johnny came marching home from World War II and had missed his wife, and it had been a while since they'd seen each other, and the result was 46 million of you people, the baby boomers. And by the time you reached this age, that period of adolescence had extended. You were no longer considered to be an adult at age 18, but rather at age 22. Now, some of that was positive. The more universal availability of a college education, for example, for your generation and, and for subsequent generations. But coupled with that was this idea that while you're in college, you should still act like you're in high school. And because there was so much of that, you had this extension of adolescence. And then came my generation. Where are my Gen X brothers and sisters at? Born between 1965 and 1976. By the time we came onto the scene, that termination point of, of childhood adolescence into adulthood had grown from age 22 to age 27. That's where many of us were. You ever watch the television show Friends? It's in reruns on Netflix right now. That's my generation in a nutshell, full of angst, gathered at a coffee shop in large groups so we could talk about ourselves. That was us. And it took us a while to find ourselves, whatever, whatever that meant. And now we're seeing the emergence of the final portion of the millennial generation. Those of you born between 1977 and 1998, where are you at? Yeah, lots of you. And so for you guys, you're a wide swath of a generation. I mean, the oldest of you in this room right now are already well into your 40s. The youngest of you, you can't even drink yet. Like it'll be the end of the year before you're able to legally drink alcohol. And so, and so there's this wide measure of experience, but still when you average this together, your generation tends to reach this point we call adulthood at age 29. You see what's happening? It's getting longer. It's lengthening. Um, demographers are telling us now that the generation my children belong to, Gen Z, possibly could be into their 30s before they reach adulthood. Now, one of the reasons for this might be, I'm just going to suggest, that even adults really don't like to adult. Right? When you have to make a verb out of something, that's a pretty good indication that that thing, whatever it is, might be a problem. And we've got this situation now where we talk about adulting, and I don't want to adult, which now actually has a definition in Webster's Dictionary. It, it means to be able to do things on your own, and specifically mundane or routine things. The things that I really don't want to do, whether it's doing my own laundry or paying my own bills and whatever area of your life uh, that there's something that you just don't like to do, but you're going to do it anyway because you know that it's important to adult and the reason it is so hard for teens to aspire to, let alone become adults, is because even the adults don't want to adult, even in the home. And so as I think about this, I think about what does the average 13-year-old see when they look at our culture and they think about the path from where they are to what it means to become a man or a woman. There, there are virtually no milestones. There's no real expectation, and there's not really any clear path in many contexts today from A to B. And so when the average 12 or 13-year-old is still kind of in childhood looking toward adulthood, I think they kind of see this. I think they see a swamp. 
I don't know exactly which way I'm supposed to go to get out of this. I don't know where the danger points are. I don't know what the milestones ought to be. I don't know where I need to be 12 hours from now, 24 hours from now, three years from now. I don't know. And, and if you, if you will, there is a swamp between the onset of puberty and adulthood with no clear cultural direction through the swamp. And this is where we need to return to the scriptures. So I want to show you 1 Peter chapter 4 first, and then we'll go back to Luke chapter 2. But in 1 Peter 4, I think we find a, a really great definition for what it means to adult. Peter says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as stu good stewards of God's varied grace. In other words, realize that you have been created by God, you have been gifted by God, you have been wired by God for a specific place within society and in relationship to Him. Therefore, you need to employ all of those things, this is what an adult does, for the sake of others rather than for the sake of yourself. That's what it means to be an adult. And if you have enough people doing that, showing deference to each other, you have a group of adults that can model for those desiring to become adults what it means to look like an adult. And to, an, and to adult, you need a very different picture of this period of life called the teenage years than the, the period our picture is throwing at us. The picture that our, our culture is throwing at us is really not where you need to look. Instead, let me carry you back to three historic examples. I, I want to talk to you for a minute about the really brief stories of George, David, and Clara. We'll, we'll start with George, who lost his father at 11. That means he had to grow up really, really quick. Now, the thing about George is even though his teachers and most of the people around him didn't consider him terribly bright or gifted, he nevertheless would apply himself very diligently to his studies, particularly in the areas of geometry and trigonometry. And he became a master surveyor so that by age 16... He had surveyed all of Culpeper County, Virginia, 16. Then there's David. David found himself, through just a lot of bad luck, on a warship that had been captured by the American Navy. And since apparently in this particular situation there weren't officers and adults around of age, 12-year-old uh, David was given the, the role of taking this ship and its captured captain back to the United States. The captain didn't like the idea of being commanded by a 12-year-old, and he even hinted at one point he might go below deck and get his pistols. David, at 12, informed the captain in response that if he appeared on deck armed, he would be promptly shot in the head and thrown overboard. At 12. And then there's Clara. Clara, when she was 11 years old, saw her older brother fall off of a barn roof by accident. Multiple breaks all kinds of internal injuries. It took months for her older brother to recover, and she was essential in that recovery process, so much so that the attending physician for her older brother would eventually leave her with the complete care of her older brother. Again, she's age 11. Think for a minute about George, about David, and about Clara. Who these people are is amazing. We look at that and we go, that should be extraordinary. But what we don't understand is it wasn't really that long ago in history where we called that normal because they had serious expectations placed on them at a very early age. Now, I'm not suggesting that we should send 12-year-olds to war or that we should expect 11-year-olds to be an RN. That's not what I'm saying. But I am telling these stories to you so that we can see the contrast between these three individuals. George, 
who would go on to become the first president of the United States, David Farragut, who would become an admiral in the United States Navy, and Clara Barton, who would found the American Red Cross. If there's a teen listening to me right now, I want you to hear me well. That's what it means, or what it used to mean at least, to be your age. Now let's compare and contrast that with what it means to be a teen now. Just go to Google and type in, type in teens and expectations. And you're going to see a contrast so deep that you'll come to the realization that I did. That realization is that it is possible, even within the church, to completely disregard and disobey the, the example given to us in 1 Peter 4 and still be seen as acceptable as parents, grandparents, guardians, friends of parents who, who have offspring at this stage of life, as the church. We want to see something different out of our teens. We actually want to build warriors out of our teens. And if we're going to do that, we've got to rise above a culture that, frankly, is just infected with low expectations of what our teenagers are able to do. So that's what I want to ask. What would it look like for every teen in this room to accept that responsibility? What would it look like, conversely, for every mom and dad or every grandparent who's raising a teen at this point in your life to accept that responsibility, I'm going to raise this individual to confound those low expectations. I would submit to you that it would look even better than the biographies of Washington and Farragut and Barton. And the reason I say that is because our ultimate model is not George Washington or David Farragut or Clara Barton. Our ultimate model is the Lord Jesus. And the scriptures tell us, as we just read in the passage that Bob read to us earlier, that we see in Jesus the perfect example of a perfect development starting at age 12 all the way up until age 30. We don't have a detailed biography of every encounter that he ever had or every test that he was ever given. But what we do have is a broad summary that, that emphasizes to us the pattern that our own teenagers need to follow. In Luke chapter 2, we read that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. In all three ways, he did so and he did so perfectly. This is what we want to see. And if we want to see this, we have to acknowledge and respond to what happens to our children. In order to see that, we need to see, the, we need to see what happened to Jesus as he entered his own teen years. So let's back up and let's, let's look at this story again. Beginning in verse 43, the Bible says that when the feast was ended and as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, anybody ever lose their kid at the mall? Don't feel so bad. The mother of God lost him for three days. They found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. He said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things 
in her heart. Now, if we're going to be honest with the, 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 the root intent of the meaning of this text, we have to admit there are things that are true of Jesus that are not true of your teen. This is part and parcel of Christ's own coming of age and his own understanding of his unique identity as the Son of God and his role in obedience as the second member of the Trinity to the first member of the Trinity. That's not true of your teenager. Okay. If you have a teen and they think they're God, we've got multiple mental health professionals that are part of the covenant family that'll be glad to help you out. Okay. That part's not true. But what I want you to see here is there's a pattern uh, of similarity here that will happen in a teen's life. When they get to be around the age of 12 or 13, you're going to see something that happens in their lives that's very, very similar to this narrative. You're going to see them start to grow. You're going to see them start to develop very much of their own identity. And as a result of that, you're going to see a bit of separation. And what you need to know as parents is that's normal. Developmental specialists tell us that there's two hallmarks of adolescence. The first is physical maturity, and that includes sexual awakening that comes with puberty and all of those kinds of things. The second is intellectual maturity. In other words, at this stage of development, again, starting around age 12, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to describe this for you, and some of you who are parents are going to go, oh, and oh, at the same time. Because you've been experiencing what I'm about to describe. You had no idea what's going on. But what happens is you've got this awakening intellectually, and this stage of development launches a season of what's called abstract thinking. See, a four-year-old... Your child was, when they're four, they're able to think. But when they're 14, they think about thinking. It's different. It's a different kind of thing. It's a different kind of mental process, and that leads to a different view of the self. And so prior to the time that they get to this stage developmentally, nearly all of their identity, mom and dad, is wrapped around you. What's starting to happen as they become 12, 13, 14 years of age, sometimes as young as 10 or 11, is that thinking that, that in the brain, it, start, it switches and it starts to, to look more abstract. And now they're, they're looking at you and they're looking at themselves and they're asking all kinds of questions they weren't asking before. And there's a bit of a separation that's starting to occur. And the thing you're going to have to fight against mom and dad is reaching out to grab them to pull them back in. Because if you do that, you're going to keep them perpetually four. And that's not your aim as a parent. It's not my aim as a parent. It is not to bring them back in. It is to help push them out. And granted, that takes a number of years, and it takes a lot of effort. But you need to understand that while this is happening, your child is developing a very different view of themselves. Okay? So while they were, before they were teens, they just kind of accepted their identity as connected to you, but now they don't, they don't perceive that any longer. They're able to conceive of other minds, other opinions, the perception of different ideas and the, the existence and coexistence of different ideas in the same culture and oftentimes in the same house. You've probably experienced this from your son or daughter who's in their teenage years. And to a, as to a parent, it seems like that little, innocent, big-eyed, big-headed kid who used to just say, yes, mama, yes, daddy, and now is pushing back against you is rebelling. In all likelihood, it's not rebelling so much as they're just starting to think in a different way, and they need mom and dad to help them continue down that road. That's what they need. Because if you're going to make an adult out of them, this is what they have to learn how to do. All right? You have a teenage daughter. She's been told up to this point who she is. But now she realizes I'm the center of my own self-project. I am the creator 
of my own drama, and it produces an initial separation. Hear me well, mom and dad. That separation is inherently a good thing, okay? It doesn't mean that everything that comes out of it is good, all right? Teenagers can be snarky, but you need to correct the snark while you continue to encourage the growth, all right? Correct the rebellion while you are able to rightly, as a mom or a dad or a grandparent, separate what's actual rebellion from what's just, hey, i got to push against some stuff here because there's things I'm not sure about and there are things that I am exploring. Mom and dad, you've got to guide them through that. What you see as a result of this encounter in Luke chapter 2 is the perfect submission of Jesus to his parents at, this, at the outset of this stage of life. But that perfect submission is combined with perfect development mentally, emotionally, physically, socially. He grew in wisdom. He grew in stature. He grew in favor with God and man. He grew as an abstract thinker. He grew physically. He hit puberty and all those things that are supposed to change, changed. He grew in favor. He learned how to get along with others and not just those within his own age group. And so this is the pattern, mom and dad, that we need to learn to navigate our kids through. And I want to take those in reverse order, starting with the sociological. It says of Jesus that he grew in favor with God and man. That's what our teens need to learn to do. They need to develop sociologically, and that development begins with the parents, with the grandparents, with the guardians, with the foster parents, whoever you are. If you've got a teen in your house, this level of development, it starts with you. It starts with you. And you're going to have a kid who are, who are including you in questions like, who am I and who are all these other people? And, and who are these parents and why do they think as they do? The child that once was, was, was willing to just accept whatever because you said it was true and they trusted you, now that separation mentally and otherwise has occurred and they're starting to wonder why. But this why is not your four-year-old's why. This is a 14-year-old's why. This is a much more complicated why. And when they do that, don't think that they're just by default that they're rebelling. It's, it's more likely that they're just asking questions. The reason this is tough for you is because the child who before just simply said yes or no and just accepted it is now asking all these questions. And again, I'm not saying it's okay for them to rebel. I am saying, uh, in fact, let me go ahead and say this. If you're a teen living in your mom and dad's house, eating their food and wearing their clothes and you say, wearing their clothes? Wait, did they pay for your clothes? Yeah, then it's their clothes. That's what I mean by that. As long as you're living under their roof and you've got under their authority, you have a responsibility to be submissive to them. Doesn't mean you can't ask questions, but it does mean you are not allowed to rebel. And this goes, by the way, for some of you who may even be in your late 20s, but you're still living in your mom's basement. She's still washing your underwear. You're not an adult yet, okay? This is something for you to learn. When you become a fully functioning adult, you can relate differently, but until you get to that point, you have a responsibility to your mother and to your father. I'm not telling you that it's okay to rebel. Here's what I'm saying to your mom and dad right now. I am saying that at this stage of development, there are huge questions of life and meaning that deserve an answer. And mom and dad, your relationship with your teen it's only going to develop in a healthy way if those questions, along with that young man or woman that's asking them, are dignified and answered and explored together. 
you got to do this together. Which means sometimes you're not going to know the, the, the answer to the question, and you need to tell your child, I don't know. When they ask you a theological question, when they ask you a, a sexual question, when they ask you uh, any other kind of question, and you don't know the answer, you just tell them, I don't know. Let's explore this together. Okay. Now, what this does is it helps them develop socially, starting with you. Because this is the this is the tragic irony. Our culture has trained us to think that the way our children, and particularly our teens, develop social skills is by being in relationship with other teens. Now, I love that they're in relationship with other teens. Uh, my wife just sent me a text picture uh, just a few minutes ago, actually. And I, I had to ignore it, but I, I did take a quick glance at it, and it was my son who's in college up north of Pittsburgh, hanging out with about five or six of his buddies. And they were all arms around each other and big grin and that sort of thing. And I think it's great to hang out with your peers. But the issue is when that becomes the exclusive thing and that begins to be promoted as the exclusive solution, uh, what we understand of the modern high school, which is only about 80 years old, incidentally, is that this just doesn't work. What they're going to learn if they're only in relationship with people their own age and no one else is the things they're able to learn from people that are their age, which is not much. It's not. Can we just put this in real practical, uh, real practical language? Your children don't need to just interact with people they're going to be working with in a few years. They need to learn to interact with the people they're going to be working for. In all likelihood, that's going to be somebody older, not somebody younger. They need to learn to interact with multiple generations. Now, why am I making such a big deal about this? I'm doing it because at a time when some of the most substantive questions are part of the teenage conscience, most youth ministries are focused on entertainment and even more socialization with other teens. Let's just have fun as part of their community. Most youth ministries focus on that. And what they need is more interaction, more generational diversity, more arguments, more evidence, more Bible, more theology, more doctrine. And some of you are going, I don't know if my teen can handle that. By the time your teen was in the fifth grade, they were smarter than you at math. What makes you think they can't do theology? If they can order coffee from Starbucks... Something that with a PhD, I sometimes have trouble doing. I just want coffee. You want espresso, you want a shot of this, you want I, just coffee. If they can use that kind of language, they can use theological language. Our teenagers are far more capable and far more brilliant than we so often give them credit for when we crowd them together in a youth ministry and play Chubby Bunny. This, is, this shouldn't be the purpose of it. Now, I will grant you this. Youth ministries that focus on entertainment, they're a lot larger than the ones that don't. But you know the difference between the ones that focus on entertainment and the ones that focus on the very kinds of things that I'm talking about? And you need to hear me well, because as we consider the bringing on of a youth pastor in coming months, this is going to be a question, because it's a question of philosophy. Those that actually focus on discipleship and addressing the hard questions may not have large youth groups, but they've got youth that don't tend to fly away from the church the minute they hit adulthood. And we're not about just bringing in a crowd. We actually want to build warriors. We want to do that. This stage of development is important. 
It's an important time for our teens to be immersed in the church. I mean the whole church. It's why our teens, uh, our 9 o'clock service features a teen service. We didn't do that this morning. We brought them all in, and we did that specifically because there are times when the teens need to be in here with the church. There are times when we don't need to send them to their room, even if their room is exactly where they want to go. They need to be with the rest of the family, just like the younger kids that I talked about last week. This helps them develop sociologically. It's why tonight when we do the ladies' meeting and tomorrow night when we do the men's meeting, those of you who are teens, we want you to be there. We wholeheartedly invite you to be there. There's some probably some young women listening to me right now. They go, well, I don't know if I want to be around those 40- and 50-year-old women. Well, you, you're going to need a 40- or 50-year-old woman before long. They're not talking about issues that matter to me. They're not talking about issues that matter to you yet. There's a need for this. And you'd be surprised at what things do apply to you if you would simply come into that larger fellowship. The things that you would learn would prepare you well for the things that are ahead of you. Same thing, young men, for you. Tomorrow night, 7 o'clock, when the men gather together, and we hear from James McDonald, and we study the Word together, and we pray together, and we eat some pretty good food together. Be there. Be a part of that. Develop relationships with older men. This is actually the pattern of the New Testament. Paul tells Timothy, this is the way it should be. Older men with younger men. Older women with younger women. Somewhere along the way, in our departmental ministry emphasis, we've kind of lost that. And it is costing the church dearly. But more so than that, it's costing people at this stage of life very dearly. We need to grow, our teens need to grow in favor of, with God and men. Secondly, they need to grow in stature. Now, if you're still clothing your teenager, you know that this isn't something you have to necessarily encourage, right? It just, it just happens. Their frames are going to get bigger, and that which went with those pants that once went to their ankles are now almost to their knees. Their feet are going to get bigger, otherwise that, that big frame's not going to have anything to support it. And so there's going to be shoes that are going to need to be bought, sometimes two months after the other ones have gotten too small. So you know how this works, but the question I'm asking here is, how well will they grow physically? How well will they develop mom and dad because of your influence? How will that happen? And that could be something as simple as, as diet and exercise. How many of you are like me and you are green with envy at your teenager's metabolism? Like they could eat four cheeseburgers and still be that big around, and you just go, I hate you. Yeah. Because eventually, it's, you know, usually for me, it was around age 30 uh, before it started really slowing down, and then it really slowed down. Uh, but what are we doing? What are we doing to establish for our teens? I'm not telling you it's not okay for them to eat at McDonald's. I'm just saying McDonald's probably doesn't need to be a regular part of their diet because at some point in their future, their metabolism will become yours. So, so how, do you, how do you encourage them in the right way? in the care of their physical bodies. And then, of course, that relates to something that, that is obvious and yet makes every parent nervous and every teen wretch when we talk about physical development, and that's their sexuality. Your teens are experiencing, if they haven't already, sexual awakening. Their bodies are changing. Things are happening. Things are happening because God designed them to happen, and he designed them to happen at this particular point in time. 
Now, granted, it's happening a little earlier than it used to happen. If you go back just a few hundred years to the time of Johann Sebastian Bach, he used to write a letter to parents uh, telling them that their, their boys that were in the boy choir would likely have to exit the choir because they would no longer be able to sing soprano because puberty would hit and their voices would go from really, really high to really, really low really, really quickly and they'd have to exit. And Bach warned parents of when this would going to, was going to come. They said it would probably happen around the age of 17. Yeah, you guys are like, what? Yeah, that was 300 years ago. All right, and some people would say because of good nutrition, better health care, others might point to some, some negative aspects of culture as well. But for whatever reason, those things are happening much earlier. And, and by contrast, we just finished moments earlier reminding you that marriage and family and all those kind of things come much later. And so the gap between the awakening of your teen sexually and the godly fulfillment of that sexual uh, activity in the covenant of marriage, it's gotten a lot wider than it was before. And there may, no, there may be no real way to close that gap. So mom, dad, grandparents, foster parents, you've got to help guide your son or daughter through that process. You know what that means? It means you've got to not be afraid to have very frank conversations about this issue with your kid. Figure out how that's going to get done. Now in the Rainey household, we kind of have a deal, Mrs. Rainey and I. I've got the boys and she's got the girl. Now I think she got the better end of that deal because she's only got to do it once. But I, you know, we, I had the talk with both the boys, probably around age nine, something like that. You need, really need to start this about, about the fourth grade, if not earlier, uh, because it's, it's starting to come earlier. They need to know what to anticipate. They need to know proper terms for things. They need to understand it. It, it kills me to hear conservative Christians lament sex ed in the public schools. And I'm just going, well, y'all ain't doing it. Somebody's got to do this. Somebody's got to explain to your son what's going to happen to his body. Somebody's got to explain to your daughter what's going to happen. Somebody's got to explain to both of them the attraction that, there's going to, that they're going to feel and, and, and the, the power behind that and that God created that and that it is an inherently good and perfect gift. Are you doing that? And is that an ongoing conversation? It doesn't just start at 9 or 10 years old. It continues. As the child continues to develop, you keep bringing this up. You're like, my kid don't want to hear it. Well, that's because they're normal. They don't want to hear dad, mom talk about this stuff. I get that. 45-minute drive one time for one of my boys. I won't tell you which one it is because I'm not going to out them. 45 minutes later, I said, do you have any questions? And this was the answer I got. No, can we please talk about something else? It's going to happen. My kid's going to retch. Well, as a father, let me just say, that's part of the fun. <laughs> but it is serious. This is something that needs to happen. You've got to guide your children through this process. If they don't get it from you, they're going to get it from somebody else. Dads, talk to your sons. Moms, talk to your daughters. Dads, talk to your daughters. Moms, talk to your sons. They need to see this from all sides. Because this is huge for them. Physical development, sexual development, experimentation, different kinds of things they're going to get involved with. Listen, all of that is inevitable. That they will honor the Lord in how they navigate through these issues is not inevitable. And much of that, moms and dads, is on our shoulders. We've got to help them grow in stature. And then finally, we need to help them do all of this in wisdom. 
Godly wisdom. Some of this is so practical that it's not even exclusively Christian. The absence, uh, uh, the, or the advance rather, of, of brain science actually tells us that the adolescent brain, particularly the male one, presents a mismatch between risk and reality. There's a reason, mom and dad, that when your son or daughter gets their driver's license, your insurance is more than your mortgage. There's a, re there's a reason for that. It's because the insurance companies know that that disconnect is there. They know that likely as not, they're going to have to fix something that your son or daughter tore up. Hopefully it won't be your son or daughter or some other human being. Hopefully it'll just be machinery, property, something like that. But they know they're going to have to fix something. And so they do this. There's a reason that the most frightening thing you could ever hear your teenage son or daughter say to another teenager is, hey, watch this. <laughs> it's because that risk-reality mismatch is there, and what they need at this point in their growth is wisdom. But they need wisdom far deeper than something that will just encourage them not to do something stupid. They need the very wisdom of God. The wisdom we want for our emerging adults is the wisdom into which Scripture tells us that Jesus himself grew, that he grew into this wisdom. And what do we know of this wisdom? We know it is ultimately embodied in Christ. Paul put it this way in Colossians chapter 2, in him, in whom, he's speaking of Christ here, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There's no greater gift that you could grant your son or your daughter. You can't give them a car. You can't give them a college education. There's nothing you can give them that will help them develop the mind of Christ like this. The embodiment of wisdom. Nothing else in their development is going to help them like this. Everything else in their development should be formed by and emerge from Christ-centered wisdom. So help them to grow socially, help them to grow physically, develop sexually, help them to grow in wisdom so that they know how to govern all these cuckoo things that are going on physiologically and otherwise with them as they progress through this stage of their life. Now, the question is, how do you do that? Because can we be honest, even within the church, we have developed a lot of what my friend Russ Moore describes when he says we're just individual units packed in minivans that come in for an hour and then disperse and we're not really connected with each other like we ought to be. And as the body of Christ, the result is we don't even have any collective community milestones that we can celebrate with our kids. We've, we've got to reestablish that. That too needs to be incorporated into the future of our student ministry when we talk about that here at Covenant. But for the moment, I just want to give you one idea. It comes from our Jewish friends. Many of you have Jewish friends, and you've attended a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah, a time when the son or daughter comes of age, and they celebrate the entrance of that individual into adulthood. Happens around the age of 13. Doesn't mean that they treat their children with all the legal rights that you would treat an 18-year-old or a 21-year-old. It just means that they're starting to push that child at that moment away from childhood and toward adulthood. Anybody know where the bar mitzvah came from? Until about a year ago, I really had no idea. I, I thought I'd research it, and, and it's interesting. You don't find it in the Old Testament. There's nothing of the bar mitzvah in the Old Testament. There's nothing of it in the intertestamental literature. There's nothing of it that you can see in Second Temple Judaism. You don't see anything like what we know as the modern bar mitzvah until you get to around the midpoint of the last century in Europe. 
And the reason for that was, as they say, invention is the mother of necessity. And the necessity at this point was a lack of men who were able to gather for the, the appropriate number to be able to have what's called a minion, a prayer group for the Jews as they call out to their God. And so, and so what would happen then is they, they ran out of men. Plague was part of that. Persecution of our Jewish friends was another part of that. And so they said, well, if we're going to do this, if we're going to have the appropriate minion, we need to redefine a man. And there's nothing in the Talmud, there's nothing in the Torah that, that would keep us from defining a man as young as 12 or perhaps 13. And so the rabbis then entered into this huge debate about when exactly does a boy become a man? And they settled on the exact age of 13 years and a day. So one day after a boy's 13th birthday, he would step into that environment, into that minion, and he would look at the other men in that room, all of them old enough at least to be his older brothers, many of them old enough to be his father, some even old enough to be his grandfather or his great-grandfather, and he would announce to them in a voice that no doubt vacillated between the soprano of a Cindy Brady and the bass of a Barry White. Today, I am a man. Nobody believed it. But everybody in that room, I can imagine, would smile, and they would say, this is good. This is a good thing. This is good that you are starting to move in this direction. It's good you recognize you need to move in this direction. It is good that you hear that you are saying it. It is good that we are hearing it. And so from now on, you will stand with the men. What kind of moments do we need to create here for those milestones to be aimed for and realized in the lives of our young people here at Covenant? We need to start working on that. What's that going to look like? And to the young people, let me just simply ask, are you ready for that moment? Are you ready for your bar mitzvah? Some of you are 17, 18. Some of you are 28, 29. That moment has never occurred to you. Oh, today I'm a man. I should get a job. I should go to class. I should think about somebody other than myself. I should think about doing something other than my Xbox. What, where are you at in all this? Where are you going? What will be your contribution to humanity and to the God in whose image all of humanity is created? How will you move forward in that moment? Young ladies, are you ready for your bat mitzvah moment? Are you ready to stand with the women? What would it look like for some of you to go back to school tomorrow and for your teacher to look in that seat that you're occupying and no longer see a girl but a woman? No longer see a boy but a man, even though you're only 13, even though you're only 15. How would they view you differently? What would your response be to that educator? Would there be greater respect? Would there be more diligent application of your studies like a young George Washington? Would there be a willing taking on of, of some burden like a young Clara Barton? Are you ready for that moment? Because that's God's good intention for you. And culture is doing everything it can to try to hold you back from becoming everything God intended you to be by telling you that it's okay for you to continue to act like a child. Hear your pastor when he tells you out of love, it is not okay for you to continue to act like a child. What needs to happen is you need to purposefully push yourself, and you need mom and dad and grandparents and your church family behind you pushing you toward that bar mitzvah moment, that bat mitzvah moment. And I can't predict exactly what's going to happen if you do that. I can't tell you with dead-on accuracy how a teacher would respond to you doing that. I can't tell you although I would imagine a heart attack is not out of the question, what it would be like for you to go home today and actually offer to do something. 
without your parents having to ask you to do it? I, I can't predict all this, but I can tell you this. It will put you in a far better place, and it will put you far ahead of so many others that are at your stage of life right now. And if you will commit to submitting to your parents, grandparents, foster parents, whoever's raising you at this moment, if you will commit to submitting to their authority and committing yourself under that authority to attaining these goals at 11, 12, 13, 14 years of age, I can promise you this, you will be far ahead in just a matter of months of people who are 20, 25, and 30. It will change your life. It will change the lives of the people around you. But you have to understand that there's only two kinds of human beings, children and adults. There are young adults. That's where you're at right now. But which identity are you going to wear, understanding that Scripture really doesn't allow the category you see in our culture of an extended childhood called adolescence? You have to stand with the men. You have to stand with the women. Parents, guardians, church, we've got to help them understand to stand with the men and to stand with the women. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the example of Jesus in every area of life. Thank you that no matter where we are right now, if we're five, if we're 15, if we're 50, that there is nothing, nothing that we can go through that he doesn't understand, that he doesn't sympathize with, that in some form or fashion he didn't suffer from himself, tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. And Father, with that identification, may we walk in his path. May we have parents who are committed not to clinging to that little boy or little girl that grew up in their home, but to releasing them, to seeing the separation that naturally occurs by your divine decree as something good and something that they need to empower, as a fire on which they need to throw gasoline, to send that child out as a man, as a woman. Father, I pray for the young men and the young women that they would have a new vision of what it means to be 13, to be 15, to be 21, to be 25. And Father, you would give them that vision in light of and in, in, in cooperation with the way that you have gifted them and uniquely designed and created them. And that into the Lordship of Jesus, they would seize it for all it's worth. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here. And I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.